Hello and welcome to YHTV's nominated show, Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 93. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Souza Ma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Hello, Christina. Hello, hello. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're excited today because you love going inside the doctor's bag. Oh, I do, I do. And it's like, Liz, like I like uh, searching into the deep depths of the bags. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to go deep today, and I... uh, I have some warnings for people, but before we start that, greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your co-host along with Christina as we search through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy looking for optimal health. Mm-hmm. And our special guest today, as you know, those of you that listen all the time, and we know there's a lot of you out there, uh, we're going inside the doctor's bag today, so it's my time to tell some stories. <laughs> You're on candid camera. No, <laughs> no, and anytime during this show, you know, you can feel free to ask a question and make a comment just by scrolling down on the screen and typing it into the comment box. Now, um, if you are driving or if you would prefer and you're listening to this through a podcast, just give us a call with your question or comment at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Be sure to leave your name and your contact information so that we can respond to you and um, answer your questions or have Dr. Woolman can answer your questions. Thank you so much, Doc. Uh, You're welcome. I do want to say that I'm going to be taking a little time off uh, in the next few weeks, but we still have a few shows to uh, check out, and it'll be a great time for you to catch up and watch all the previous shows. Every single one of them. (laughs) <laughs> Every single one of them, exactly, to be up to date when uh, we get back and start again. Well, now it's actually very easy now because you can download it straight into the iPod or, or whatever device you have and just carry it everywhere with you. <laughs> That's right. And uh, my understanding is you don't just have to listen if you're listening on a podcast now. Our our wizard, our technical wizard, Segovia, has, I believe, worked it out so you can actually still watch us on the podcast. Yep. That's what he's done. What a guy. Yep. (laughs) So today, uh, as most people know, and those of you that have followed our show, you know that I started out in emergency medicine for many years and then uh, became a medical guide where I help people make medical decisions and help people uh, to try and achieve optimal health. And in that process, I always talk about the six categories. If you look at other episodes, uh, you'll know the six categories that through my lifetime, I was able to realize that these are important aspects of life that need to be addressed. They all need to be addressed. You can't just address one. You have to address all of them. And it was through years of being in the emergency department and my experiences in medical school and residencies and in my integrative medicine program, seeing all of these things, the six categories uh, became evident to me. And those categories are exercise, nutrition, stress management, sleep management, spirituality, and patterns of behavior. And over many of our episodes, people can go back if they want to look at some of them. um, We talk about them in depth. But I thought today it might be interesting to uh, go to some of the stories that uh, 
And when I say stories, I mean the experiences I had in, in medicine and working with people that really influenced me to determine how important these categories were. And so that's uh, the idea for today, to tell some of those stories and tie it into the categories a little bit. Uh, in some of the other episodes, we talk about the categories and I give ideas and what to do and how to do them and things. But I think we're going to go in another direction just to give you the history of that. And I do have to say that uh, I want to have a viewer discretion warning. There's going to be some adult contact. There's going to be content. There will be some uh, violence, graphic violence, only verbal, of course. <laughs> uh, I don't want to have visual violence. And there will be some adult uh, sexuality in here. I was, going to, I was going to say there'll be no adult language, but I guess if I'm an adult and I'm speaking, that's a form of adult language. So. <laughs> We're going to ban you from the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, one of, I was uh, getting ready to interview uh, a nurse that I'm going to be having on. And uh, she, we were talking a little bit and she used some adult language. And I said, well, I don't know if you can use that on our show. Can we? Mm, there's nothing that has a ban on it. Okay. It depends, right? Right. The voice uh, of God says no. <laughs> we, we have an explicit tag in our iTunes feed that says no, we do not have explicit content. So let's try and keep it out. Okay, oh, good. Is that considered explicit? Oh, well, we have that discussion later. <laughs> I didn't think that was explicit content. <laughs> no, I, th I think just the language, maybe, anyway, hopefully. <laughs> Well, I hope this show doesn't get banned then. I won't know until the end. So <clears throat> I think starting with a story, we're going to start with exercise. Uh, so I was working uh, the night shift in one of my hospitals. And when you, work, when you work in an emergency department, you end up having contracts with the police department, with paramedics, uh, with fire department. Uh, and so... You know, obviously, paramedics are always bringing patients in, but sometimes police also had to bring patients in if somebody got hurt before they were going to arrest them and they potentially needed to go to jail. We would uh, have to fix them up and make sure they're okay for jail or to be in the hospital. And sometimes we even had interesting uh, aspects where they were going to arrest someone and they needed us to determine if it was a male or a female uh, to decide which prison to go to. But anyway, many times in the, in the night, the police and fire and rescue come over and hang out in the emergency department, and we all sit around the campfire and talk about stories and things like that. Well, except in the emergency department, the campfire is usually, we, light, we turn on the otoscope, the little uh, instrument that you look in someone's ears, so that became our campfire light. <laughs> <laughs> and we would tell some stories, and, and one of these uh, people, asked for some advice. They said they were having some uh, problems and they wanted my opinion on it. And I said, sure, let's talk about it. And the person said, basically, they complained of headaches, neck pain, sometimes back pain, but lots of lower extremity joint pains. And they didn't know what was wrong and they were very concerned about, was it psychosomatic? And the reason they were concerned that it was psychosomatic or all in their head was that they had they went to their own doctor and had a really good workup, uh, you know, scans of the brain and x-rays of everything. 
blood tests and nothing came up right. So this person was very concerned. And of course, being um, concerned, you wanted to make sure that there was nothing that they were missing. So I sat down and we talked for a while. And in my history, I realized that all of these symptoms that he had came after he was exercising. And we talked about his exercise. And his exercise turned out to be that every morning he would run either five to 10 miles. And every afternoon he would run five to 10 miles. And after he would do these runs, he would get headaches and joint pain. It seems so obvious to me, but he wasn't getting it. And he and every runner knows, you know, someone who loves running and gets that endorphin high and gets into that pattern of behavior of loving that doesn't ever want to give it up. So they're willing to um, do anything to not believe that that's the cause of the problem because they're exercising and they're doing something that's good. And especially when you get into situations where you're in a profession where being in good health and activity and having your strength up and your endurance conditioning up, there's always younger younger men and women coming in that are much more uh, adept than you. So a lot of the older people try to really push themselves. Anyway, we talked about it and I said, you know, I believe that you're problem is related to your running. And I discussed the physiology of running and the physics of running and the impact, the pounds of pressure that every time your foot hits the ground in a pounding manner, it sends a shock wave essentially through every joint and goes up to your brain. So I, so I suggested that he stop running. And of course, he wouldn't do that. And I said, okay, let's do this as an experiment just to make sure that this is or is not the problem. I want you to stop running for two weeks. That's all. We'll just see what happens. So he uh, agreed to that, and he he finally uh, stopped running for two weeks. And he came back to see me, and he said, "This is amazing," <laughs> you know. And of course, you know the answer already. All my symptoms are gone. You know, headache is gone. The joint pain in the knees and the ankles and the hips are gone. The intermittent back pain is gone. He said, "This is really great." I said, well, you have your answer, so now what we have to do is uh, figure out a different exercise that can keep you happy. He said, no, I'm going to continue to running. Now that I know that this is it and it's not in my head, uh, I feel okay with it. So the point here for me at that point when I watched this person who was so dedicated to exercise, we realize exercise is important. Uh, we all talk about that in different ways, stretching, conditioning, resistance training, a uh, number of different things. They're all important. But just like everything else, the idea is that too much of something is not good, even if it's supposed to be good. So we always have to find that balance. And if something that you're doing in an exercise is really causing you problems, don't give up on exercising. It's just that you need to change a pattern of behavior and find a new exercise. So that's my little story for the exercise part of the program. Wow. So did he, did he find a new exercise? No. He loved running and would never stop. And so he went back to it? Went right back to it. And did all the symptoms reappear? Instantly. Wow. Yeah. But now he felt better because, you know, many times people go, oh, I have a headache. Could I have a brain tumor? <laughs> and, as, and as soon as somebody says, no, you don't have a brain tumor, then, oh, okay, it's, it's just a headache from 
this or from that. Mm. Mm. You know, so, yeah. So it it became very important to me in two aspects. One was the exercise aspect, and two was the patterns of behavior aspect. Mm. That's why those two categories are very important in maintaining optimal health. You have to you have to exercise, but you can't overdo it and think that that's good because it's just exercise. It's like taking too many vitamins because vitamins might be good. It just doesn't it doesn't work that way. You don't just keep getting better and better. So if you run 10 miles and it's good, then 20 miles would be even better. Wow. Not a good one. <clears throat> yep. So uh, let's talk about the next area, the uh, next uh, category. That would be diet and nutrition. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a fun one <laughs> that is a fun one and and we spend a lot of time on that in in this show and your other shows we have multiple interviews with tracy harrison and kabir southwick we think that diet and nutrition are, are really really important and this is this is how this became i mean i always knew that it was important but this really stressed it for me this little story uh, today so I came in on a morning shift, and usually when you walk in, you kind of set your things down, and you get in touch with the other doctor and, and kind of say, who's here, who's there, what are you leaving me, how was your night, how was your day? You have a little conversation, and you relax into your shift. Every once in a while, it doesn't happen that way in the emergency department. As I walked in the door, the nurses already know that one doctor is leaving and the other doctor's coming on. And they said to me, go to bed three right now. We have an emergency. So drop my bags and go flying into the third bed. And I see this nine-year-old boy uh, who was extremely obese. And he was surrounded by his mother, a younger brother, and a younger sister. And nurses were all around him working on him. He was having an asthma attack. And asthma is an airway disease closes up the airways inside your lungs and makes it harder and harder to breathe. If you could imagine uh, that the only thing you could do is breathe through a really small straw all day long, how tough that would be to get enough air in and oxygen and how exhausting it would be. And when we, when we look at breathing for a person, that's a very, very critical moment for us because when I saw this child, aside from the obesity, I saw him really stressing and struggling to breathe, the kind of breathing that you see when you take a live fish and take it out of the water where it struggles for a few minutes and then it gets slower and slower and the breathing becomes more shallow and more shallow and you realize that within the next second or two they're going to stop breathing and that becomes serious because you don't have much time after that. So I needed to make a quick assessment. Do I need to intubate this child, meaning do I need to take control of his airway, put a tube down through his throat or nose into his trachea and breathe for him. That's the alternative. Otherwise, he's going to die. And I'm looking at him. Aside from giving him medications, the nurse, the nurse had started medications. They had him on a little bit of oxygen. And we were giving some of the appropriate <clears throat> medications to hopefully open up his airways. But I started looking at him very carefully. And it was every second. And in each second... I had to determine, is this the second where I intubate him? Now, we do have 
one thing now in emergency medicine where we have drugs that we can actually put someone out. You, you know what general anesthesia is, but we have a lighter version of general anesthesia that we can use in the emergency department and put someone out and it paralyzes their breathing. Hmm. And that's a good thing when you have somebody struggling and fighting because you can't put a tube inside of their throat when they're struggling and fighting with you. So the only alternative would be to wait till they stop fighting, meaning they've stopped breathing. Oh, <laughs> or, or give them the medication which paralyzes them. In either of those two cases, if you're not capable of, of doing the intubation, and because he was extremely obese, it meant that he had a very short, stiff neck, it, I knew it was going to be a very tough intubation. Hmm. But I had no choices if I had no choices. So I started working with this child, and I got right next to him, right into his face, and got him to focus on me. And we almost, we almost went into a meditative trance together where he was totally focusing on me and no longer focusing on that he was dying. Mm -hmm. And I got him to start breathing like I was breathing. And I worked him into actually the metaphor square breath that we talk about many times mm -hmm. uh, on this show. But I started to get him to concentrate on me and to look at me, focus on me, focus on my breath, take a breath when I took a breath, hold it while I hold it, let it out while I let it out, and take a breath and hold it and do all the things. And slowly, very slowly and painfully, I watched this child who I thought was having his last breath start to come around. I could see that the, the strain in his face and the strain in his trying to breathe through those constricted airways was starting to get relief. The medicines were kicking in a little bit, and he was calming down. And this took maybe about 20 to 30 minutes before we really got this thing done. And through that entire process, we were all just waiting to see if I had to intubate him. Mm -hmm. Or to see, you know, people die from this. So it was very critical. <clears throat> Eventually, he started coming around and started coming around started coming around, and I felt finally that we, we got past it and he was going to be better. The medicines were working. He was better. His breathing was normal now. He wasn't struggling anymore, and everything was okay. And you, and you could see that the ex expression of the mother and the two younger siblings, they were, they were glassy-eyed through this whole thing. They didn't know what was going on. They certainly knew that their uh, brother or son was in trouble, but they didn't totally know the extent of it. Uh, and as he was coming out of it, you could see that they were coming out of it also. They were becoming more alive at the same time. And finally, when I was able to declare and say, okay, I think we're okay now and everything's going to be all right, the first thing the mother did at that point was she reached into her purse and pulled out a bag and say, now that he's okay, is it okay to give him a bag of Cheetos? <gasps> and I, at that moment, that's when it was very strange for me because I realized at that moment how important food is to people and, and all of the different ways that food manifests itself. This was... Uh, a bonding between mother and son, giving him a gift of coming back, giving him something that he loves, a nurturing, 
even though it clearly in that moment, it was not the right thing for him, but the mother was thinking it would be, he's better, he needs to eat. And I realized at that moment, you know, listening to him say, her say, can I give him a bag of Cheetos? Just when he came back, mm. it was, it was very important for me. We know that food is good. We know that important. If you listen to any of the talks that we've done with Tracy Harrison, she talks about eating nutritious food, you know, so that food is, we have to think of the nutritious and nutritional qualities of food. And that's important. When we talk with uh, uh, Kabir Southwick, our Ayurvedic practitioner, he agrees that nutrition is important, but his aspect of focus is really on digestion. So when we start eating food, it's good to first think about its nutritious qualities. But the second thing is to think about food in terms of digestion. And what I mean by that, and what he means by that, is how easily and well and accepted by the body is it in being broken down and to be able to brought into the body. So you can judge this by if you eat something and you get heartburn, or if you eat something and you get bloating, if you eat something and you get a lot of gas, if you eat something and it makes you feel really tired, this gives you an idea that maybe the nutritional part is not good, but also you're not digesting well. And you have to figure out if it's your digestive problem or the foods that you're eating and start developing your own process of what foods you should eat and avoid. And then the last part is to eat for nutrition and to eat for digestion. But as Dr. Mikio Sanke, our acupuncturist, our esoteric acupuncturist said, think, um, eat for assimilation. Uh, he didn't really use the word assimilation, but basically what that means is that once the food is brought into the body and broken down to its normal parts, then it has to go to different parts of the body. So he, you know, he said, uh, imagine if at a certain point you eat something and at that moment the brain needs an extra bit of protein. So whatever you're eating at that moment, I think he used the word, if you're eating a hot dog at that moment, that hot dog becomes part of your brain. So I was thinking at the same time, well, that Cheeto is going to be part of you know, the brain at that moment. Mm-hmm. So that, that was uh, one of my little stories to remind me that nutrition and diet are a very important aspect of what we do. Any thoughts? I know you always have thoughts on that. (laughs) Well, um, I guess my question, was the whole family obese? Yes. The whole family was. Yes. And what baffles me, um, uh, Glenn, is that the whole family or so many of the family members were actually in that emergency ward with that child. I know in Canada, you're not allowed. I mean, it's like the parent, of course, but the other kids and everything. You know, what if something a little more extreme were starting to happen? I mean, I'm sure you scoot them out, but but yeah, we're, we're just not allowed. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. It, and it's a, it's a very interesting aspect of emergency medicine. One of the great things about emergency medicine as a new specialty within the realm of medicine itself uh, is that we questioned everything. So, and we're always looking at everything. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a study in progress. And we tried to, and it started with people that were 
uh, dying, uh, elderly people in cardiac arrests or having CPR done. And we were trying to determine how it was for the family to be in a waiting room not knowing what was going on versus to be right in there to see what's going on, to see the critical nature of it, to see the the work that the doctors and nurses and all the lab techs and everyone else are doing on behalf of this person who they may mm -hmm. not even know. Mm -hmm. And there, there are multiple studies out there that say sometimes it's better for the family to actually see what's going on. It, it, it impresses them in a different way. It may change mm -hmm. their life and make a pattern of behavior different for them. And, you know, we always talk about how people don't change their patterns unless they get slammed in the face. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So sometimes uh, we do allow people to be in. Certainly it's critical and we don't always, but I think what, what usually happens uh, is that sometimes the family can come in. And I think in this particular case, my guess was that the child was not that bad at the beginning. He was just having a little asthma attack. He's had them before. The whole family has watched them have asthma attacks. And so they all felt comfortable going in there, and the nurses felt comfortable with it. Yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, mm -hmm. If things really did get bad, I probably would have moved them out, or the nurses would have. I would have been concentrating too much on him, mm -hmm. but the nurses probably would have got that. But we have a tendency to like to keep family around, especially for a child, because mm -hmm, yeah. at least they feel they're not alone in this scary place where there's lots of needles and sharp instruments and and people in masks, you know, having your family around is a calming, th calming thing most of the time. And especially with a child that was really nervous, having a calming effect was good. Having the effect of, oh, good, you're better. Have some Cheetos, maybe. <laughs> it was not that good. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, only if the, the people present were calm. <laughs> well, that's, that's I know some parents that would be going off the deep end faster than the child. <laughs> no, no, that's true. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And, and, and the people that work in an emergency department, from the clerks that sign people in to the techs, that all of the assistants that help just bringing sheets and, and uh, water and anything, everyone that works in the emergency department develops a sense about them of being able to read the people in the emergency department. So it, the clerk at the beginning could can recognize that this is a family that's really stressed out, and they can express that to the nurses so that they're aware of it and make decisions about that. Or they could say, oh, this is a really good family. They all seem connected, and they're all calm. And yeah, they can all go in together. This is the, the secretary uh, telling us <clears throat> who we can let in and who we can't, mm -hmm. because they're all, they all become good at it. You know, They're around it so much that they really do be, become uh, a part of the team, and everybody's adding to that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ready for another category? Yeah, absolutely. We've just covered two, right? Three. Right, two of them. Mm -hmm. Well, three in the sense that each of them always has patterns of behavior in it. Oh, okay. So patterns of behavior is, is always linked. <laughs> patterns of behavior is always linked. And not only is it patterns of behavior that's always linked, we always talk about patterns of behavior. We're all about patterns. Mm -hmm. uh, for many reasons. And behavior is one part of patterns. We, of course, have the patterns in our body. Our heartbeat has a rhythm to it, so that's a pattern. We breathe in a pattern. We sleep and, and wake up in a pattern. 
We have menstrual cycles in a pattern. These are all physiological patterns, but mm -hmm. behavior patterns are things like how do we brush our teeth? How do we put our clothing on? How do we put our makeup on? Uh, how do we start the car? What do we do when we come to an intersection and we're walking? How do we date? How do we work with other people? They're all patterns. So for me, patterns of, became, of behavior became very important because it really modified all of the others. If somebody had problems with nutrition and we had to change their nutrition, it's not just the nutrition. Mm -hmm. It's the patterns of behavior that surround the nutrition and mm -hmm. modify the nutrition. So learning to understand that we are about patterns of behavior and learning how to work with patterns of behavior is the key to helping people in all of these areas. Mm. Makes sense. I get it. Yeah, I know you do. Mine is bouncing. Yeah, that's my yeah. pattern. <laughs> we should all, be, should all be bouncing. <laughs> that's a good pattern. Unless it depends on what you're bouncing on. That might... You know, we'd have to look at that and evaluate it. <laughs> so what's our next section? Uh, good question. This one is stress. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yes. yes. What's that? And, and this one, I will say for our viewers and listeners, this is one that's going to have some adult content and adult violence. Oh, stress. <clears throat> the stress, stress is the violence. That's the yeah. personal violence on ourselves. That's right. Well, boy, well said. <laughs> you know, people. I know it well. Do. That's why. <laughs> 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 right. Uh, sometimes is it self-induced or it's <laughs> never our fault. <laughs> Stress. Okay. You know, when people would uh, ask me what I did, I didn't, I don't always volunteer what I do when I'm in crowds, but when people find out that I worked in emergency department, their usual reaction was, oh, wow, that must be so stressful. I couldn't handle that kind of stress. It's amazing that you do that. I would usually say to them, oh, I never looked at it as stressful. I loved it so much. I will say that um, it was all, you know, I never put together that as I would always go to a shift, I would have this wave of nausea that went through my body each time just before I walked in the door. Uh, mm -hmm. And I never equated that with stress, but uh, which is a which is a very important point, which I'll bring up at, at some point. Uh, it was only at, until I stopped working in the emergency department that I really and had to work with other doctors and could see more of their stresses that I really got another idea of it. So stress is not only is stress bad for you, but it could be so insidious. Uh, that's what makes it even worse. You don't even realize it sometimes when mm -hmm. you're stressed. But one of the reasons I didn't think I was stressed is because the emergency department was very exciting in the sense uh, that you never knew who was coming in with what at what time and whether you knew something about it or were you going to be able to help them. It was always exciting. <clears throat> and at this one day, I didn't know at that moment that. Uh, the next patient I had was going to affect the rest of my life uh, with nightmares. Mm. Uh, it was 
in the early afternoon on a weekday and things were kind of slowing down a little bit. We always know we get the dinner rush. The uh, dinner rush. The dinner rush. Well, <laughs> you know, people, the, the dad or the mom comes home, the one with the car, the kid's been sick all day and now they're worse and now it's a team decision. Hey, maybe we should bring the kid to the ER. <laughs> so see. that always happened. <laughs> and, then there were, and then there were people that know that this is when insurances were very specific and you had to go to your clinic you had to go to this specific place. And a lot of people learned over time that going to their clinic uh, was not as good as going to an emergency department. So mm. if, if they went to an emergency department during the day and the clinic was open, after we evaluated them, if we saw that they had a true emergency, we took care of them. But if we saw that it was just a simple clinic problem, uh, then we would call the clinic, say, can you see this person? They're here. They would say yes, send them over, and we would send them over. And, of course, they never liked that. that that's what they were trying to avoid. But one of the things that they were able to do is realize that when the clinics closed at 5 o'clock, if, we if they went to the emergency department, we couldn't send them to the clinic. So that mm. was another reason for the rush. Oh. <clears throat> right? Strategy. Strategy, <laughs> definitely. And people learn strategies for their medicine. So anyway, it was in the early afternoon, uh, and suddenly the paramedic radio went off. And this is where I got my first clue that something was different. Because normally the paramedics are very cool and calm and collected. They give me you know, a report. I'm here with a 72-year-old male who's having congestive heart failure. His blood pressure is this. His pulse is this. His oxygen is this. I've started an IV. What would you like me to do? It's all really organized. We have the routines and patterns down. Well, this one paramedic got on the phone, and she had a very sad quality in her voice, and it was almost, there was no more of the critical things. She basically did say to me, we have a four-month-old girl uh, in what looks to be a cardiac and respiratory arrest, and we're not sure why she's with the father. Hmm. And uh, we immediately, you know, everyone that's listening to the radio gets a chill you could feel that chill just go right through your body. It's a four-month-old. And you got to realize a four-month-old is probably uh, maybe somewhere around 16 inches long mm -hmm. in length and maybe, you know, 15, 16 pounds, something like that, depending on what they were at birth, of course. Of course. So we started gearing up and everybody is, you know, when a child is coming in, we always think, children should be okay. You know, it's understandable when a 90-year-old has a heart attack or is dying, but it's never the same with a child. Mm -hmm. So we started gearing up and getting ready, preparing ourselves, clearing things out, moving people away so we could use our full attention on the child. So the, the next clue came when instead of this child being on a backboard with an intravenous line and oxygen, paramedic was carrying this little girl in her arms. Mm. So I, I grabbed the little girl, we put her on the bed. And of course, the first and important thing is to assess airway, breathing and circulation to make sure because if, if we don't take care of those right away, mm. then, then it doesn't matter what else we do. So the first thing I did, I, I assessed the airway, the girl wasn't breathing. And now I have to do that same thing that we talked about a few minutes ago. I had to intubate a little four month old. Wow. Um, and, and that's never easy, but 
I got that done. And at the same time, the nurses were putting it in intravenous lines so we could give medications that would go directly to the heart and the brain. And if you can imagine the talent and skill it takes for a, a nurse to thread, uh, literally a thread, putting a needle inside a piece of thread of a four-month-old to try and get uh, certain medications in to see if we could start the heart and get some things going and prevent uh, further disaster. So we got the airway and the breathing and uh, the IV in, and then I started my uh, secondary trauma survey to figure out what was going on. And this was the first time that I undressed the child. And as I undressed the child, the oh. view the view that I had and the view that we all had at that moment is a view that I have to say that still haunts me today. I still see this view all the time in my life. It was a, a boot print that was <sighs> embedded on the child's torso from chin down to the pelvis, just embedded. So this child essentially was stomped. Um, oh, my God. We had no idea why. And eventually what happened was we realized that after this that there was no point anymore. We still worked for a little while, but uh, there was no point. The child was dead. And I went back to uh, the father, who was a 17-year-old young man. And it turns out that he never gave us any information at first. He said he didn't know what happened. But once we saw the boot print, and certainly we saw his boot, um, we were able to piece that together. What happened was that his 14-year-old girlfriend, the mother of the child, for the first time actually went out and left the child with him alone. And uh, she had to go out and do some food shopping. So he was left with the child alone, and the child began crying and screaming, and it became what we call the inconsolable crying. And it got, he tried to do things, and eventually it got to him, and he couldn't handle it anymore. And his only course of action to quiet this child down was to stomp it. And that killed the child. And at that moment, uh, I realized, and in many moments after that and before that, how stress is so important in our lives to understand that we need to deal with it instantly. We need to deal with it at a young age. It isn't something that people just have to grow and learn on their own. We need to teach people at a very young age what stress is, what it's about, what causes it, and even more important, how to recognize it, and most important, how to deal with it. Because if this young 17-year-old boy had known that or had learned that, this beautiful four-year-old girl might be alive today and might be uh, you know, making a cure, discovering a cure for cancer. So for the sake of our, our humanity, we need to learn how to deal with stress, and it needs to be taught, I believe, in schools and classrooms. When, they, when the girl, the 14-year-old girl slash mother, um, came in, we moved her into another room, and uh, this room had a couch in it, and I had to go in and tell her that her child was dead. And not only did I have to tell her her child was dead, but I had to tell her how it happened, 
And I know that she was going to walk in and see this child with that footprint. So all of this was going in my mind. And I, we moved her into her room and she, did, she knew something was wrong because we wouldn't let her see her child. And she was panicking and screaming. And I said to her, please sit for a minute. And she wouldn't sit. Just tell me what's wrong. And I finally had to say to her, her child had died. Mm. And with that, she went into this rage and fell backward onto the couch. And as I tried to follow her to lean forward and catch her and protect her a little bit, uh, her leg came up and she kicked me right in the face, which is, <laughs> which is an, another part of emergency medicine that we all deal with. But you can understand she didn't do it on purpose and it wasn't directed at me. I knew that. And I knew that my little problem with my face getting kicked had nothing to do with what she was going to have to deal with. So. This is something that haunts me every day. I still see that picture periodically when uh, my mind goes into certain places. I'll never get that out of my mind. Mm. But the important part, I think, is to just understand how important stress is and that it should be a topic that's taught right along with good nutrition and exercise and everything else. Mm. Oh, completely agree with you there. That's quite a. Uh, that's quite the story. I've never told that story to anyone. Uh, I thought I would tell it here. Mm. Mm. Very powerful, but uh, wow! I, a part of me says thank you for sharing that. And because part of it, it says it really, it really, it, it it really smacks us over the head to sort of say. Get it under control. <laughs> Get it under control. Get it and under control, really. Yeah, stress Recognize is something. It. Uh, it's important. I knew, I mean, sometimes now I can laugh a little bit, but I, I would see some kids coming into the emergency department, maybe a 17-year-old that was working at one of the fast food chains, and they were having something wrong. And I would say, what's wrong? And they say, I'm totally stressed out working at this restaurant. And I would think, I would be looking around at where I'm working, <laughs> and looking at the things that I'm dealing with. And I realized that stress is individual and it's personal. You know, I clearly, uh, he was stressed and it's some, but nobody talks about it. They just use it as a word. It's an actual physiological problem that happens and it needs to be taught about. So hopefully, uh, everybody listening to this, uh, show will learn something and start figuring that out. Hmm. That's a very powerful story. Yeah. I shall I shall definitely borrow that one <laughs> to, to share with others who are dealing with stress. Because yeah. it 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 um I as you said to be in the beginning and you prefaced with, you know, sometimes we have no idea what we're dealing with. We don't and with each individual it is so um, it, it is a very individual situation where some people can deal with a certain amount of it. Some people, can, you know, what is stressful to one is not stressful to someone else. So um, it's uh, it's very interesting. I, I, I see the different levels of stress all the time when I'm at the schools, all the time when, you know, we're shopping out there, when we're driving here in Los Angeles, you know, <laughs> yeah, the levels of anxiety. Really? It's it, it's That's what it is. And how do we how do we address that for ourselves? I think that yeah. you've brought up a very good point. How do we yeah. address that for ourselves? And do we want to see it and become aware of it? 
Yeah, seeing it. Like I said, you know, I never thought I was stressed in the emergency department mm -hmm. because I was so excited in there. But it was only after being away that you can realize that. So it's, it's very insidious. And I think we need to have much more teaching and training at an early age. Mm -hmm. I understand sometimes when parents say, oh, I don't want my eight-year-old to learn about sex uh, mm -hmm. be because it's going to tell them things that they shouldn't know yet. And maybe I can see that from a certain point of view, but I still don't totally agree with it. I think it can be approached on a level that a child can learn things. They learn much more quickly and they're more aware than many people give them credit for. Yeah, because but, you might as well start early because they're going to learn it in school. <laughs> and if this 14-year-old and 17-year-old had learned it, that's right. They, they may not be uh, parents at that age. That's right. That's right. And it's very interesting that you, you bring up this, uh, the subject of stress because we are doing a show in positive psychology concerning, um, and on Trinity of life on sexless relationships because sexless, sexless. Okay. Yeah. Relationships, uh, that is, uh, becoming more and more because of the stress in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Everything around us, you know, the way we are choosing to live life now, how we're choosing to live life, and how that is starting to break us down, a little bit at a time. A little bit at a time, and yeah. sometimes a lot at a time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems right now, just one last aspect of this before we move on, um, is that our standard practice right now is eventually when you get so stressed out, you go to your doctor. And you go and say, I'm stressed out. And the doctor, some of the newer doctors and some of the integrative doctors will say, okay, let's talk about meditation. Let's talk about uh, relaxation techniques and visualization techniques. But in many cases, you're going to the doctor because you want relief. And so the doctor's only relief that many people will accept is here's a pill. Mm -hmm. And or here's a this or here's a that. And then you're on something and then you get relief from it and then you have side effects and then you need more relief and stronger. So you go into this vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. So very important if you want to try and prevent that. Yes, thank you so much. I, I do believe that you are right in line <laughs> oh, thank with you. my thinking too <laughs> and I think the that's the doctor's thinking that's the safest way to be all people should be in a line with Christina right, that's absolutely the non-doctor <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness uh, we have three more to go sleep it's time time for sleep, <laughs> time for sleep. uh after a uh, busy night shift, I came in uh, to relieve one of the doctors. They were up all night. And this was at a time when uh, sometimes people were doing 24-hour shifts. This person had done a 24-hour shift, and they were up for the 24 hours. Uh, everything seemed okay. They turned over the cases to me, and uh, the on outgoing doctor just said, you know, good night. <laughs> they always say good night whenever it's a shift, <laughs> even if it's 8 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of fun, some of the little things that happen. Anyway, uh, driving home on a country road, he fell asleep at the wheel oh. and hit a parked car, 
uh, got into a minor accident, of course, caused problems with the car and everything else. A week later, uh, an emergency doctor was coming to the hospital for their morning shift, and they had had an angst-filled uh, sleepless night, and they fell asleep at the wheel and ran into a parked tree. A parked tree. <laughs> a parked tree. <laughs> <laughs> Ran into it. <a>, yeah. <laughs> well, it's a tree in a park, <laughs> and and it's just sitting there, so it would be a park tree. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, these were just two little points. I didn't want to spend too much time on sleep. Uh, we had a couple of shows with Dr. Andrew Binder, mm-hmm. I believe it was, who speaks extensively about sleep, the importance of sleep. I talk about sleep in many of my uh, inside the doctor's bag shows, and we've had, I think, even a show on sleep. But uh, sleep is very important. There, are, we don't know a lot about sleep yet. We just know that it's important. We think there are certain things that it does. Uh, that's a time of some regeneration. It's a time of memory. It's it's about again patterns of behavior. All different species sleep differently. We know bats sleep upside down. Certain animals sleep standing up. Certain curl up into uh, a ball, others burrow in the ground. Uh, dolphins actually put half of their brain to sleep and keep the other brain awake so that they can continue to come up and get oxygen. So there's many aspects of sleep that are important. And we talk about how much sleep people need, and there are many arguments about this. We figured out that the average human needs around 7.5 to 8 hours of sleep uh, I usually need around nine hours of sleep and love it when I get even more. <laughs> but there are many people out there that always claim, oh, I only need an hour sleep. I only need three hours sleep. Uh, but, <clears throat> and that may be true in certain cases, but for the most part, and uh, Dr. Binder says this also, it's not always the qu- quantity of sleep, mm-hmm. but it's the quality of sleep that one gets that is also very important. Mm -hmm. And so in this little aspect here, uh, I want to just stress it's the quality of the sleep. And you can judge the quality, and this is the important uh, point here, I think the lesson for you. If when you wake up in the morning, or whatever time you, whatever hour of the day you wake up, if you're still tired, if during the amount during the day you're having these head bobbing moments where you're falling asleep, a lot of yawning, a lot of uh, you know just sighing and and dreaming about being back in bed and being very <laughs> sleepy, <laughs> then that means possibly you didn't have enough quantity sleep, but you certainly did not have enough quality sleep, mm-hmm. and. It's just very important that we're learning more and more about this. You know, we take it for granted. Everybody says now it's something we do for a third of our lives and we don't, we don't concentrate on as much as we do for other things. But again, the whole idea of today's show is to tell some stories about why these things influence me to realize that these are the important aspects that need to be addressed, uh, and balanced so that a person can achieve potential optimal health or get back to optimal health or maintain optimal health. 
So sleep, again, extremely important. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this should be taught to people also. I think we need to teach all of these things. It's not something just because we know that when we go to bed and close our eyes, when we're tired, we go to sleep. We should know about what sleep is. We should know why we're sleeping, and we should uh, honor sleep, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the key for me there. Yes, I was one of those whose three hours was enough. Now, I'll take the seven. <laughs> I'll Absolutely. take the six to seven now. Absolutely. It's like, okay, and it's the different times of your life, and I, I do believe it's the ebb and flow. It's like a child. You know, that there are certain times where I watch my son and, you know, seven hours, he's up and at it. He's good. He's good to go. His body wakes up and he's good to go. And when he's going through a growth spurt, I'm looking at nine to 10 hours. For you, you know, or for him? For him. Oh, yeah. For, <laughs> for me, it's always nine to 10 hours because of what I have to put up with. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, literally, it's, it's like when they're going through those spurts. Right. The body just needs to rest because it's almost like like they're sprouting every night. <laughs> yeah, it's and amazing. that's one reason. That's one reason for sleep and there are so many other reasons for sleep. So somebody who's not spurting anymore and not growing has other reasons that they need to sleep. They may have illnesses, they may mm -hmm. have uh, many things. It's also they're looking at the possibility that this is an area where you may be able to change patterns of behavior. They, they think and they've done studies where somebody, for example, who's trying to learn a piano piece, if they learn it, if they're trying to learn it just before they go to sleep, sometimes the brain starts putting those pathways together mm. during sleep. So there are many reasons for sleep. Mm. And then there's also too much sleep, isn't there? I don't know that. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, <laughs> you want to crawl back into bed now? <laughs> now, yes, there is too much sleep, and there could be too much sleep because it, even if you look at it from the other reason that you're, if you look at it from the point of, well, I really enjoy too much sleep, let's say you sleep 18 hours a day, uh, and that only leaves a certain of other hours to get in your exercise and your nutrition and, uh, other things. Mm -hmm. So I think, yes, there is a balance. You don't need massive amounts of sleep and, and the body works it. It's almost like a banking system. Uh, you have this amount that you need to keep in the bank. And if you don't sleep enough, then the body's going to try and make it up. And then when it makes it up, then it goes back to the normal account again. Mm. Okay. Number five. Are we done with sleep? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're never done with sleep. And again, that's also about patterns of behavior. When you go to sleep, how you sleep, how you prepare for sleep, how you wake up. Those are all, again, patterns of behavior that we include in each of these. So the, I'm going to say the last one, uh, and if we have time, maybe we will talk about patterns of behavior as a specific one. But mm. I'm going to talk about the last one is spirituality. And... <clears throat> Spirituality, obviously, is very personal for people. We could talk about nutrition, and that may not be quite as personal. We could talk about exercise, that may not be quite as personal. But spirituality is something that's personal for each individual. So this was uh, another shift that I was working. It was a night shift. And I tell you that 
when the police walk into the emergency department and along with the P, the police is someone from Child Protective Services, you already know that there's unhappy situations going on. Something bad is happening to a child. And I really wasn't prepared for what I was about to uh, see. I walked in to this uh, room and the police were there, Child Protective Services were there, and there were nine children in the room, ranging from about ages of two to uh, maybe 11. I don't know. And I was hoping, my mind immediately went to, oh, I hope this is, you know, maybe they all have food poisoning, or maybe they all have lice or ringworm or something like that. I just wanted something easy. It was apparent that the children, and I heard that they were uh, from a very religious family. They all dressed the same. They uh, had many aspects of what they were about had to do with a very, very religious type of upbringing, very strict, very orderly, uh, and programmed. And so what it turned out for me and what the story came out with when I talked to the police and the people from uh, Child Protective Services is that both parents had been molesting the older children for many, many years. And then they started molesting the younger children. And then what happened was they were trying to get the older children to join them in the molestation of their younger siblings. And it was only the two older children that realized that something was wrong, and they were the ones that called the police and brought this whole thing to bear. And it made me realize at that time, I'm looking at this very religious family and seeing something that was just totally contradictory. Yeah. And I realized at that moment that religion and spirituality are not necessarily the same thing. Certainly religion can be spiritual, but spirituality does not exist because of a clothing or a ritual or a custom. It exists within the hearts and minds of people. And for me, at that point, it came to the process that we disguise some things within religions to accept and account for certain things. But if it's against humanity and it's not right, that is not true spirituality. For me, true spirituality, aside from uh, understanding where you are in the universe, your position, and that you're part of the universe, and that we're all part of something similar, we're all connected, that's a spirituality for me. For sp for me, spirituality is also trying to come to your own true nature, to your higher and deeper self. And when you come to that higher nature and deeper self, then you exhibit things like love and compassion and kindness for others. And that, to me, is what spirituality is about. And it's so important in the whole process of the life balance program along with eating and exercising and stress and sleeping spirituality is very important 
clearly these parents believed they had a spirituality, but it was totally off. And clearly the two children that called the police and brought this whole thing, and you can imagine what it's like to have to call the police on your own parents and then to know that you're going to have to explain everything that's gone on for years and years and years of what this was, all within the context of a religious upbringing. And I'm not really trying to bring religion down for any reason. I'm trying to bring spirituality up. Certainly, they both can be connected in a good way. And this story for me always rings true when I think about spirituality. It's important to have humanity, have love, have compassion, and being kind to uh, fellow human beings and all things on this planet. It's not about cultural customs and rituals. Oh, my. Another powerful story. You know, it's, it's these stories that have to do with children that really set in so deep, don't they? It's like um, what they've already been through at this point in their lives. I mean, these children weren't even teenagers yet. No, they were very young. Mm. Mm. And they were, they were at, at the beginning, of course, they were part of it because they knew no better. That's right. That's right. And that because they followed certain customs and rituals, they felt that this is the way it was. Mm. It, it was only their inner, their inner wisdom, that inner spirituality, that inner higher self, that when it came time to being forced to molest their own younger brothers and sisters, that they realized something was wrong and they had to go to a higher place of consciousness. And it's sad when you have to count on a, a 10 or 11-year-old to have the higher level of consciousness. Mm. Yeah, these are many stories that I've never really shared with people. Well, thank you for sharing them here. I, I, I hope and my wish is that uh, from these stories that people will, will really raise their level of consciousness you know, for themselves and for those around them. And it really starts at home first. I mean, we, we have to start with ourselves, our own awareness, our own consciousness, and raising those levels. And and from that point, it'll emanate, you know, to those around us, I believe. So, wow, very powerful stories. Thank you, Glenn. Yeah, that was beautifully said, Christine. I agree with you that it starts with ourselves. And especially if you're going to take on the responsibility of becoming a parent, mm. then you have to be a role model mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a teacher. <laughs> uh, yes, a doctor, a nurse, a dentist. No, a, a, <laughs> yes. a, a, a teacher by example. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And even when you don't think that you're teaching them, they are absorbing everything you do. It's, it's amazing. They are these sponges. And you look at them and go, where did you learn that? And you go, well, look in the mirror for just a second. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, I remember now. <laughs> amazing. And those patterns of behavior, of course, is interlinked with all this. Again. Yeah, I, yeah, I have some patterns of behavior stories, but I have stories in each of these areas. But these were some of the more poignant ones for me that 
I thought if we're going to make a point here, let's let's go for it. Mm, very powerful. Mm-hmm. Oh, so do you have a tip after all this? <laughs> <laughs> do you have a tip from the pit? Oh, do you never explain to everybody what the pit is? Well, we uh, we titled the show uh, Inside the Doctor's Bag, Tales from the Pit. Uh, it was something that uh, the people that worked in the emergency department, when it was just starting out, they weren't departments. And we were this strange group of people in a, str- in a part of the hospital where lots of things happened. And so we sometimes affectionately called it the pit. Especially when it was when there were nightmare things going on. So a lot of times we used to say, you know, we talk about how how was it in the pit today. <laughs> so I thought I would just name it "Tales from the Pit." Uh, do I have a health tip? Uh, you know, a a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, who was struggling with cancer for two years, and I went through this struggle with this friend, uh, very courageous all the way through, uh, died this past week. And I, in going through it with him, watching all of the things that were done, surgeries and radiations and chemotherapies and not stopping the cancer, watching it grow. And then every place it grew caused a new pain or a new side effect. If it was in the lungs, it the breathing problems. If it was in the neck, it was starting to collapse the vertebrae and potentially mm. cause spinal compression and paralysis. If it was in another part of a bone, it was just painful and you couldn't move those extremities, vomiting every day due to chemo or something else. Just a, a courageous but losing fight at this point. Mm. And he died beautifully with dignity we worked on that for a while and he died in a beautiful way pain-free and comfortable Mm. and what was important for me is i realized that life is so precious that from the very moment i was there with him uh, when he first felt this lump and from that moment on his entire life was focused on that lump and all the things it was doing for the next two years. He, he could no longer be really working well or going out and enjoying life. He tried for, at the beginning for a little while, but as things got more and more critical, so for the moment it happened mm-hmm. that he found it, his entire life changed, and it was all about this uh, spiraling process. Sometimes we do get good effects. And that's good. We've interviewed a number of people, uh, Lon Winston and a few other people that um, have done well with cancers. But in this particular case, it was a very difficult thing. And the part that is important to me is that how precious life is in that the second something happens like that, that's what your life becomes. So what I am giving as my health tip is appreciate every moment that you have that doesn't have that involved in it, Mm. that that doesn't have a disease, that doesn't have a a terminal event involved in it. And if it does, then appreciate the good parts. But when when it's no longer good parts, then I think that it is okay to uh, leave this embodiment and uh, move on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Ah, blessings to your friend's spirit, Glenn. Yes, yes, really, thank truly. you. Truly, that's quite a journey to be on. Um, you know, working with many people who are in hospice and things—it's, uh, it is a journey. It is uh, definitely a journey, a very, very individual journey. And uh, it was time, and yes. now it's, uh, it's. Wow, I, I agree with you. Every day, every moment is so precious, and even if something were to happen even becomes more precious mm -hmm. because there is always beauty. There is always beauty to balance if we choose to see that beauty too. And right. it's hard sometimes. <laughs> hard. <Right. laughs> and, and, and putting it that way, sometimes the beauty can be in saying, okay, enough of this realm. Mm -hmm. I'm, looking for, I'm looking for a different beauty. Yes, absolutely. And I then being okay with that, which mm -hmm. is where, where he was. He mm -hmm. was okay with that. Mm. Anyway, yeah. I am grateful to being with you and to all of our viewers for watching us on Magical Medical Tour. Uh, I look forward to uh, many more episodes. As I said, we're going to take a little time off, uh, but we'll be back stronger than ever with great, interesting shows and great topics that hopefully all of you will learn about and use in your search for optimal health. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Glenn Woolman, for another fascinating hour in the doctor's bag, <laughs> in the pit. <laughs> and of course, to Segovia Smith and to the whole yoga team for making this possible. And of course, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're always grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, followed every other week with Flowing Into Awareness with Anatara. And uh, just to, until then, I want to remind you that you can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman by following him on Twitter at uh, Glenn Woolman, and of course through his own site, glennwoolman.com, where I truly encourage you to learn about his metaphor square breath. Um, that is uh, the breath that he had mentioned that he was working with that young man in that was having an asthma attack. It is a wonderful, wonderful, very calming breath, and um, I, I truly recommend you check that out. And we, of course, would love to hear your feedback. If you have any questions or comments, if you would like to hear from someone out there, if you would like us to bring in a guest speaker, do let us know at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. And until next time, namaste. Namaste.